I literally stopped short in a compound once to say, okay, this isn't going to be, this isn't an ideal situation. People had died, were injured and waiting for evacuation. I do to this day remember kind of even picturing a box, like put your feelings to one side and just do the best you can in this moment. Um, It's not going to be nice. Those who are living a life of freedom have optimized themselves and their lives in pursuit of one thing, choice. They've created the financial, geographical and time freedom to do what they want, when they want to. But they've also created freedom from their internal limitations, their story, their biology and their character. In this podcast, The Freedom Project, it is my attempt to shortcut your learning curve to having total freedom in your life so you can go and do more cool shit. I'm going to bring you deep dives into some of the most inspiring adventure athletes and business owners in the world. I'm also going to give you the key concepts of my coaching process to adventurepreneurs so you can start applying that to your life today. So here is another episode of The Freedom Project. Adventure comes to us in many different forms. For some of us, the mountains, the sea or the sky reveals itself to us as our path. For others, our call to adventure is a literal call to arms. A signal reveals itself to us and whispers, this is your journey, this is your gauntlet. The price of admission is mighty and the potential cost is your life. The adventure of a military career is rewarding in a way that civilians will only ever guess at. Camaraderie, danger, fulfillment, humour and misery beyond anything the civilian world will ever offer. For James Malone, his deployment to Afghanistan in 2018 came with all of the above. He returned with the onset of PTSD, which morphed into alcoholism to cover the pain. For years, he turned away from the decision to confront his problems, but then he found a more authentic way of living, stopped drinking, and bought a camera with the money he saved. When we've created a persona which serves a purpose but betrays our authentic self, the juxtaposition creates pain. James's journey is one of rediscovering authenticity and through that discovering true satisfaction for the first time in his life. In this podcast, you too will discover what discovering authenticity looks like for you. James's current venture is creating a feature-length documentary, Once We Were Warriors, an exploration of what it means to be a veteran and why the labels of bad, sad or mad are lazy stereotypes. Once We Are Warriors shows the journey of a handful of veterans exploring the slopes of Chamonix and using the mountains as a tool for growth. You can support this incredible project by visiting www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com. This journey with James is super authentic and raw and I think it there's truths in here that you can apply no matter where you are in life whether you are hitting rock bottom or whether you're seeking your next level i think it's rediscovery of these essential truths that helps us find our next level whatever that may look like so here is the wonderful james malone so from the outside it seems like there's a conflict between someone who joins the military and someone who is artistic in some way i think once you've been in the military and you've kind of seen it for what it is uh, for some reason especially in the royal marines but 
it seems like that's congruent throughout the military. It's less like shocking. So where did that interest in creativity begin for you? Well, yeah, great question. And uh, yeah, I'd say I'd always kind of been, um, you know, I'd always been into drawing and stuff. But in terms of as like a young kid, I would rather spend time by myself doing that than than anything else normally. But um, I suppose when I got into my teenage years and I studied art at school, I remember picking up a, we, we got asked to, you know, draw portraits, but none of my family family would sit. And I remember finding a book of portraits by a photographer called Don McCullen, who is a, a war correspondent photographer, basically. Um, and there's a, if you just Google shell-shocked Marine, that photo will come up and it's, it's world famous, just a Vietnam Marine. I remember seeing that photo and it being like so powerful and, you know, thumbing through that book and discovering like photography properly, really, besides like, you know, mountain bike magazines or whatever, just kind of just seeing that and realizing like, wow, you can, you know, there's a cliche picture, a picture paints a thousand words kind of thing, but that really, really blew my mind that what spoke to you about it, about that image in particular. Um, you could, you'll see, you, when you see this image, you'll, you can see just right into this person. You can see everything they've been through and like, you can feel it. Um, and it's, it's just so powerful. You don't need to say anything. You can just say, you can just deduce so much from mm. like everything about them and what they've been through in, in that, you know, recent period. So I just thought that was fascinating essentially more so than like, you know, kind of corporate kind of photography that like real documentary fly on the wall approach was just just yeah i thought was phenomenal and i've been in kind of kind of always had that in the back of my mind i think yeah yeah what were you like as a kid like if i was gonna meet you if i could go back in time and gonna meet you what would i notice um quiet i think reserved um probably quite emotional i'd rather i didn't want i just i really wanted to avoid conflict at all costs so um whereas my you know my brother on the other side on the other other hand was really want to meet people at the park play football and stuff whereas i was like i just saw that as trouble <laughs> so and i don't know why I, I honestly can tell you why but yeah i quite happy in my own world i think yeah so like i, I resonate with that completely that's mm-hmm. exactly how i was as a kid i was like um the kind of the shy kid the one who wanted to give himself themselves and then something comes along like joining the military and it seems like actually, I'm not going to um, color your answer to that. Like, what was it that excited you about the military, or what was it that resonated in you? Well, I mean, it was more um, probably st- stubbornness and anger. Really, uh, I had kind of been dissuaded. Um, I, I'd had an offer to to study art, and I wanted to. I wanted to go and do it. I got a place at like Plymouth College of Art and Design to do like a foundation degree, which would have led on to, you know, potentially what I do now. But um, I kind of got advised against that. And I, I get it now. Like at the time I was annoyed, but I think I was just, I was just like riding bikes and surfing and just like doing a bit of art. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like not really dedicated. And um, the advice I got was like, yeah, don't do that it won't be right for you not in so many words kind of thing but um so i said to my dad who had just left the marines that okay then i'll join the marines and he i think from his perspective looking at how i'd been through school which was 
pretty chilled out and not really that not too dedicated about most things a few subjects but he kind of sort of he understood from his 24 years of experience what it took and he had sort of said i you know i don't think you'll be successful but that kind of really lit a kind of rocket under my ass so to speak and um i don't think he, he didn't mean he didn't mean it um to be mean he also understood that it was on the cusp of you know this is post 2001 9-11 so people were just he saw where it was going yeah and i'm his son you know his, mm-hmm. his youngest son so he did not want me involved in that but just had a different way of explaining it so yeah i don't think there was like a there wasn't a real passion, you know, a, a straight up passion, but actually now you bring it up, I do remember seeing my, my old man was a, like a, a reconnaissance uh, troop sergeant. And I remember he was in a book about the British forces and there's a photo of him there climbing a frozen waterfall. And like my dad, I was like, my dad pointed out that that was him and I recognized it as him and it's the coolest thing to see. So on the other hand, there was that aspect too, is like, you can do that for a job. And you can go and do that, and you know, t- to test yourself in a different way. Um, there was that allure of that, I suppose, because I'd never been that person. I'd done ten tours and stuff, but to really, you know, push yourself, I think that that was a little bit of a draw. And you can, you can reform your own idea and everyone else's idea of what you what they think you are. That's exactly what I saw it as. Mm-hmm. I saw it as a an opportunity to kind of um, wipe the slate clean. Yeah. And say, and for myself as much as anyone else, to say, yeah. actually, this is no longer who I am, and almost as a a rite of passage. And I felt the difference as soon as I began like mentioning to people, like, this is what I'm planning on doing. I remember this one teacher who, again, like he had, I think he had truly had my best interest at heart, but he said, oh, I don't think you know who Marines are. Like, I don't think you know that type of person because if you did, and he was like, I think he's trying to protect me in a way, but there was something in it that was like, that's the gauntlet that I need to run. That's the challenge in front of me. Yeah. I feel feel like the, yeah, I can kind of like echo that sentiment as well. I think there was a level of protection there from those of my family, but I think for me it was, yeah, obviously really formative. And I, I, once you get into training, I learned that you don't have to be that person all the time. And they put a really big emphasis on not being that person until you need to go, until you need to be. So um, you only had to be that character for specific amounts of times or tasks. And the rest of the time you could be whoever you wanted to be. And they, I felt like they welcomed your individuality and your personality and you know your sense of humor or the way you see things. And that does lend itself to creativity as well. Yeah. And it's almost that image, like I found it partially as that image of someone who is this like the archetypical Royal Marine that you look at and you go like, that is what I want more of in me and not that kind of, um, not the not the identity that I've built into that point. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I agree, mate, yeah. I think yeah. Um, went on a bit of a search for it and had a few tough times, definitely, like, um, but... Mm-hmm you do kind of, um, I guess it does happen. It does start to click and you do. Yeah. I do remember there was a stage in training where we got to about night, week, night, week nine. And I got very upset about where I was and didn't understand. I think that was me kind of breaking through. And it was like, I didn't know whether to leave or to stay or what I was doing. And I was questioning lots of things. Um, what do you mean by breaking through? 
Um, because I wasn't, I wasn't a bootneck, you know, I, my, my dad was, and I was kind of like, I'm probably in a little bit of a shadow to be honest, because lots of his, you know, colleagues and stuff were still knocking about Limston and they, you know, they let me know about it. And, uh, I think you kind of have to be your own, your own man. And I was still a boy. I was, you know, 18, 19. So I kind of got to a stage. Yeah. Like I said, I was kind of upset. I didn't know what I was going to do, whether it was right for me. But actually, it's in simple terms, I was kind of I was in a toilet cubicle, having these thoughts, like a bit of space away from everyone. In the you know, in the four and a half minutes you get off a day, and then I just remember the door getting kicked open, the main toilet door, and uh, a corporal from training like shouting my name, like Malone, where are you? I was like, I'm in here, and uh, he just like climbed over the toilet and started pelting me with toilet rolls, like. He's like, get outside, we're going to, you know, the next detail or whatever. And that was it, over. I just, like, snapped out of it. And I was like, okay, well, I'm doing this now, you know? Like, they, they want me here. He's not He's not telling me to leave. Um, and then, you know, a few months after after that, I do remember being vividly be able to, be, being able to picture what it would like to be, you know, achieve those, those goals. And when that happened and I got there, it was as I imagined. So it was just... I don't know. I felt like I broke through. I could see the end. I could see the end and how that might feel. And that like actualization of a dream and getting there was huge for me. The way I explain it to clients is almost like you have this really foggy image and it's really murky of like what you have your potential to be. And it's like somewhere off in the distance and you catch like a glimpse of it. It's like a, oh, what was that? And then that's like the shiny object that makes you go like, okay, I'll pay some attention to that. Um, I think the metaphor in the Bible is like Moses and the burning bush. It's like, oh, what was that glimmering thing in the distance? And it's like, oh, fuck, yeah, that's it. And then you get a glimpse and you walk towards it and you're like, where is it again? I'm lost. And then you like, as you step closer towards it, it like becomes higher resolution. And then you go, oh, this is how I appear now. Like this is, that's a more accurate version of myself. Like massive side, (laughs) side detail, but like what kept you in at that moment? Like when you're in the heads and you're like, I'm going to like, Am I staying going? I'm a bit lost. Like, what was what was really keeping you there? Um, yeah, kind of no plan B, really. I think I didn't know. I could not picture myself knocking on the door at home, and I, I was I was well, I well, I was picturing that, but I didn't know what I would say. I had no answer. Do you know what I mean? Like, can you imagine going home to your father? who's had a very good, long, successful career and was considered to be a very professional man and knocking on his door and say, yeah, you were right, I quit and I couldn't do it. So there was a large part of that. And then I think there was a little part of just like, well, just give it till tomorrow, you know, tomorrow will be better kind of thing. So mm-hmm. it wasn't better, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know. Worse if anything. <laughs> yeah. I think just no plan B, mate, just, just, it was going back and going home and not being creative, be a bricklayer or something. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it just wasn't for me. I just, just not you. Yeah, just not how I saw myself. So shame gets this really bad rap, but yeah. it has its purpose. And yeah. it's like I was definitely kept in a few times by going like, "Oh, I'd just be so ashamed of going home and and having that conversation." <laughs> yeah, uh, the shame. Yeah, you're right. It, it was it's exactly that. Just the shame of of quitting and not seeing something through that I said I was committed to. So. Yeah, and that's probably the unveiling of the character that you wanted to find. Of like, yeah. oh, I want to be somebody who doesn't quit. 
yeah, uh, yeah. And I knew, I know now that I have like this kind of inner monologue that is just, yeah, you you must push, you must try, you must see how you, far you can go, and you must. It's it's um, you know a good friend of mine sort of said it was it's cleansing going to that dark place is cleansing, and when you get there and you reach the bottom of the barrel and you're scraping you know, scraping the sides for any kind of motivation, inspiration, you, you get, you, you do whatever that thing is, whether it's housework or climbing a mountain, you know, mm-hmm. like, or DIY, then, uh, yeah, you, I, you, you, I don't know. You just can't, I feel like it's completing and cleansing and I just feel better about myself. It's really simple for me in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I completely felt that before. Cleansing is a really nice way to frame it. You mentioned, yeah when we're doing a bit of um, going back and forth before this and injuring training. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, bottom field, mate. Um, Just a lad called Big George and uh, six foot eight, absolute unit, Um, bit of a legend, doing fireman's carries, kind of give it the knee a tweak. And then on the actual run through, I did bottom field pass out and on the final final assessment, which is obviously the the 200 metre fireman's carry, it went on the last few metres of that. so it's basically like a collapsed arch and tears in the patella and stuff. So um, that actually led to like finding um, kind of small fractures in my shin and stuff just from just wear and tear from training. And then I had a, whilst in there, I had a, um, while I was getting back to fitness in Hunter 2 Troop, which is where you do your, re- like your, your physical rehab, um, uh, we were in the field and I just went down with like a chest infection, like couldn't walk, basically couldn't carry a Bergen. And they were like, you've got asthma. So <laughs> I was just like, no, I don't. And so it took six months of going to the Naval Board of Medicine, whatever, and running on the treadmill, like 50 cent video with all the like harmonics on and stuff just to, just to figure that out. So that was when I really had to hold on to that feeling of what I thought it would be like that's the only thing that kept me there then I was just like well it's going to feel like this and I know that'll feel good and I'll be you know if I can come through this I can come through anything so because that kind of glimmer of hope on the horizon was barely visible when I was there was no you know in training week to week there's goals and you tick them off but when you're injured it's just like you know like they're a lot harder to come by so yeah. That's really tough. You almost expect the knee tweaks and you expect the fractures and like you expect like my mate who fell off the death slide on the um, on Tarzan Assault course to like break your scapula. <laughs> like you expect yeah. those things, but you don't expect that you've got asthma. <laughs> and, yeah, like, and like, go, yeah, go figure that out. Yeah. And the trouble was I had said like, they were like, has anyone else in your family got asthma? And like all the males in my family have asthma. I am the only one that doesn't. So it's just (laughs) like, oh, it will probably be that. And I was like, well, I really pushed to, you know, it, it it go further up the chain and thank God that that kind of happens. But um, yeah, that was, that was demoralizing. Like I said, in terms of goals and hitting them. So, so you you kept that glimpse of like, this is the type of person I want to be at the forefront of your mind. How did that, progress as you went through training like where did you um how did that lead you to passing out um well yeah so got back into training after six months so i think i think i actually found it easier once my original troop had passed out and they weren't there because i didn't see them yeah. every day it was just, just not like, a reminder like, yeah like new goal and like the old training team were, were actually really supportive of me um 
in training whenever they see me, which is really quite, you know, cool and unique, I think. Um, and I just, yeah, joined a new troop. They were great. They were great. It was really good. Like they were really tight. It was hard to break into that, but they were um, a really good bunch and they were accepting and just understood that I'd been waiting for six months to get through. So, um, I think at that point I developed a lot of confidence. I'd been there a year. Um, and I, I was like, you know, I've stuck out, I've stuck this, I've stuck this out for a year. It's probably one of the longest things that I didn't have to stick out mm-hmm. that I did. So just keep at it. And, um, yeah, we got to that pass out and the best feeling of all time is I remember, you know, before we march on to King squad, talking to the drill instructor and I'd been there before in my mind and um, it was him or very similar to him, this person, he was, was familiar, do you know what I mean? So um, that was an unbelievable feeling. Like I can't, it was, yeah, I'd already been there. It was like passing out twice. Like, I, yeah, and I felt like this real deep sense <clears throat> in my bones at that moment that I belonged there and that I could do anything. Um, and that is, and I, I mean that, I felt that in like the marrow, like I, I just felt like I could do anything and it was, I've never felt that before or since. So yeah, it was a pretty special feeling. It's so interesting. I just coached someone who initially failed, they call it CPC now, uh, what was potential Royal Marines course. So for, for listeners, it's I think three or four day course now that you go down and you just get thrashed for three or four days and it's a yeah. pretty um, intense <laughs> time. And he failed the initial one, really good lad, but he just like, he had that, like giving up mentality. He just like kind of, um, he, he quit before he was ready to quit. But yeah. we talked about like, what's it going to feel like when you're standing there and you know, you've passed and you've got that kind of, I think they have like a mini ceremony there of like, well done. But mm. now the training starts. And he, he mentioned that kind of feeling of like, Oh, it feels like I've been here before. I've visualized yeah. this before. And it's that glimmer that keeps you moving forward. What happened to that? when when you finish training and you went on your next steps well you go to a commando unit or we went to you know a bit of driver training before but you go to a commando unit and uh i got there and everyone had the same color hat as me (laughs) yeah beret and i was like oh um actually you realize that you know 14 months of training or whatever it was for me at that time was the minimum standard like i had fought tooth and nail to get there and you know i definitely wasn't in the the top performing kind of group and then you realize like oh this is the start of a career this is that was that was the interview do you know what i mean so um there was that dawning realization and also kind of being intimidated by just how professional everyone was um that was insane (laughs) like (laughs) just the the knowledge base and skill level of the people that I was surrounded by I I knew I had to up up my game and I kind of understood where what my strengths were by that point and it was kind of attitude and effort um versus kind of like being able to get stuff really quickly and I understood that just I was just going to have to ask and be willing and be keen and do things by repetition basically um yeah, so those are my, like, getting to a unit. We were just about to deploy on Operic 9 as well. So there was no there was no time for any messing around or, yeah, it was just 
we were just straight on exercises every other week. And what year was that? Two thousand and seven, eight ish. Okay. Yeah, and then we deployed. Yeah, so it would have been two thousand and seven, and then we deployed on kind of mid two thousand and eight. So yeah, end, end of the summer there. Got you. So many avenues to go down there. It's interesting that you mentioned leaning into your strengths. It's like you identify them through training and then you go, oh, this is what I'm good at. And that's like, that's what I'm going to, rather than trying to balance out your weaknesses in professional athletes, they do a very similar thing. It's like, this is the type of athlete I am. So I'm going to lean into that so I can win. And, And when you're chasing excellence, it seems like you have to do that rather than kind of leveling out or shallowing out the the negatives. Yeah, you you definitely can't you can't boil the sea. So it just kind of, I yeah, I understood what I could do, and a lot of that was just just by being willing and offering offering to 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 help people in the way that a brand new Royal Marine who has no experience can, and that's by carrying all the heavy stuff and carrying it for a long time and not whinging about it. That's you know that's a that's a really easy way to win in the mm-hmm. Marines, and you kind of earn your trust that way. And then people, what I found was actually in my my team were um what was really surprising i didn't expect was that people would ask my opinion on things because you were straight out of training and that's the the most up-to-date kind of training that people had had up until that point prior to going on pre-deployment training so i found that really empowering you know just like these people had like 11 12 13 years experience and multiple tours of you know, war zones under their belt and they would ask what I think didn't definitely didn't always listen to it. But, you know, the fact that they even wanted to consider it just kind of made me realize that, yeah, um, it's a team and the team wins, not individuals, Mm -hmm. which was, yeah, insane. It's quite accepting to have that as well, to be like, actually, I do belong here. Like there's like, I may feel like I'm just a bloke wearing the same colored hat, but (laughs) the same like at the same time I'm being asked for my opinion and that's really interesting about training too, to, to have that. You had that image initially like of what success looks like or the version of you that is most successful looks like. Did you have to recalibrate that? Did you have to reconceptualize an image of success? Yeah, I think we were in terms of where I was right then, as soon as I got to, you know, four or five commando, we were about to deploy. And I think within a few weeks of going on that operation, it was, yeah, I was a, I was a point man. So success would be not dying and not having an injury to me or one of my colleagues. So, um, yeah, it changes pretty quick, you know, like success goes from like getting a bit of a lay in and being really fast on some sort of physical assessment in the Marines to let's not die. So, um, and that's bleak, but I mean, it's that was life. Uh, your world becomes incredibly small. It's you and you know twenty five other blokes, and yeah, success is keeping each other alive. I think. Yeah, it's very clear cut on your yeah. on your choices in any given moment when you have that. Yeah, I. It just there was no. You can't complicate it. You can you, you can overthink stuff, and I think I've heard. I think we've all read enough books and heard enough podcasts about, you know, mindset and military people to hear that some people can complicate it, but it doesn't need to be complicated. Do you know what I mean? It's um, just do the basics well and um, all the time and stay alive. That was, that was kind of what it boiled down to for me eventually. Did you have those kind of glimmers that you spoke of before of, Oh, this is the type of person that, 
I'm becoming and I've barely got a glimpse of it. But did that change or develop or evolve when you're on Herrick 9? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, I do remember a couple of instances, just unfortunately, obviously we had casualties and a few people got killed, but um, having to... I literally stopped short in a compound once to say, okay, this isn't going to be, this isn't an ideal situation. People had died, were injured and waiting for evacuation. I do to this day remember kind of even picturing a box, like put your feelings to one side and just do the best you can in this moment. Um, It's not going to be nice. And yeah, that was probably one of the only times I've done that, but I didn't really change out of that mindset for a very long time. And I think that's the character that you have to, I had to kind of build for myself. And it's just, no one really cares about your emotion in those instances. You just have to get the job done because lives are at stake. So mm. it's, it's pretty like dark, but um, it's something I've always had. And I know I could go back there if I needed to, <laughs> not that I mm. ever want to, but um it's an experience and I can't uh, be sour about it. I was for a long time, but you you have to learn from it. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. Like I haven't obviously been in that situation, but I can imagine and through conversations with many people that those, that ability to literally box off in your analogy, your emotions and go, those are going to one side and I've just got to get my job done is very beneficial in the short term to solve that issue but becomes a little bit too rigid in the yeah. long term yeah i think um this was on the cusp of um what well, yeah what that led to was ultimately like my, my own kind of sort of professional downfall i think just not being uh, honest about kind of how i'd felt about that and in, in at the time and um what was really difficult was i think people you know they knew me and I do remember like team commanders and stuff coming back from R and R and lots of stuff had happened when they were away and various personalities sort of coming to me and saying, Hey, James, you've, uh, you've lost your mojo. That was like the word that people said. And I was, I didn't know what they meant. Um, but yeah, it was, what were they saying? Um, I'd become really secluded. Uh, they had mentioned that I just wasn't having a, you know, like just wasn't having any crack anymore and was just, had gone quite straight, I think. And um, I'd lost a bit of hearing as well. And I think that really played into it. It's like, you know, losing hearing is one thing. If that's happens, it's, you know, it's, it's war. Um, and then, but like losing hearing and then, being a point man and having to be first into any sort of traumatic situation where people have died or been injured was quite, quite troubling. And it's almost, it's like being in solitary confinement and all you've got for company is your own thoughts and what you've seen. So it's, um, it's just on repeat. Right. So Hmm. I think they were saying that, but I obviously wasn't articulating it at all to anyone. So, um, yeah, fast became, I think it was just a bit of a concern because if you're on the ground and you're kind of walking into compounds and you have to kick doors down and stuff and uh, getting into contacts fairly regularly like we were, then, or or in my case, getting on your belt buckle and trying to, you know, uncover quite large I, like IEDs and roadside bombs, etc. 
you don't have a I didn't have control over those new thoughts and feelings that were happening. They were really intrusive and invasive. So that is an obvious concern for your team. So um, mm. did yeah, you try like, uh, obviously I'm trying to get an idea of what it's like to be you in yeah. that moment. Did you try and box those off? Did you realize like, Oh, these thoughts are another kind of unhelpful thought or was, were they too, pervasive and too strong yeah i had no control over it um and i do remember it was embarrassing it was embarrassing like you i had you know i've gone from like i said marching at olympston getting a green lid and being like top of the world and feeling in my bones that i could do absolutely anything to all of a sudden just you know washing my desert trousers after getting in a scrap or something and then having this like sucker punch of what can only be described as like emotion and dread and like welling up and like they're not, not that not being attached to anything just being like what like what's what's wrong with me so yeah it just that is really embarrassing it was really embarrassing and really i just felt so out of control um and i was concerned you know that would happen on 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 a job and it was happening I was just doing my best to just carry on with with the work, which was, you know, fighting fighting mm-hmm. an enemy. So, yeah, it was it was really um, by that point I was you know twenty, and you have a good idea of who you might be, and then this starts happening when you've just you like you, you've already formed an identity, having finished training or achieved any goal, whatever that might be. Um, and then this is just coming out of nowhere and sort of strip, like stripping that down, kind of disassembling how you thought you might be. So, yeah, it's really difficult. It's interesting you that you said they're building an identity or something to those effects because it's interesting to consider was that your authentic identity or was that like a persona that you've learned? to portray or to kind of to play in that environment yeah definitely persona i think just not naturally i think a confrontational person who enjoys conflict there are people like that out there and we need them you know like and i was surrounded by them in the core um and i wasn't (laughs) simple Mm -hmm. simple as that and i understood that you had to turn it on and i know i could do that and i know it was there you know but um yeah, I think that, yeah, I'd constructed a persona exactly that, and I think maybe that's probably where a lot of the friction was, is because potentially people who do naturally have that those kind of character attributes are better at dealing with that kind of thing. And I know that there's friends of mine who were next to me on lots of those occasions. Some of them do have trouble with it, and some of them just like, no, I don't ever think about it. It's not, it's not something that ever bothers me. Yeah, I almost view it as you know on fifa you're rated on your passing between zero or one and 100 it's like we've all got those attributes at some level and like i think um i had a conversation with if you know andy torbett on this podcast and um we were talking like i said like the thing that i struggled with was switching on aggression because i feel like my aggression is like very low like maybe it's a 
10 out of 100 or something like yeah. that and like i had to work to do that and that's when you're building the persona and you've got like the, the cause values to aim at and the core ethos and like this is who i'm becoming like that's who they want perfection and you're just kind of nudging up towards that but mm. it's effort and yeah. it's necessary to do the job and like you can translate that to outside of outside life too and whatever like listeners are in, into and like how are they spending their time but eventually it recalibrates and it has to kind of ease down mm. to get you forward yeah i think um yeah i can i can particularly remember a few instances where you have to like go into that zone and try and build your sort of aggression score if you like and um you know i can think of let's say for example one of the very early contacts we got into large open ground and then it's just like because i was point man i had the least amount of kit because i was the most likely to get injured so it was like easier for kazivak but i was also lighter and could run faster so it's like james can you run across this open field and just check there's no one in those compounds that we've you know just been fired from and just thinking like hold on (laughs) and and just having to make that decision like okay now it's time to engage like the shiny card yeah like that's the Mm. secret weapon we need to boost to 100 and and get across that but i think the trouble comes when that actually you don't ever get any come down from that because when that finishes you go back to the fob and then the fob gets attacked or it gets hit with a rocket or you know something something happens out on the ground you crashed out again and then this happens for seven days and then it's 21 days and then it's four months. And then there's no let up apart from, you know, when it's supposed to be over, which, you know, it never really is. Um, yeah. And sure you have a tactical debrief, but do you have an emotional debrief? Like, and it's not like you can see why, like there's no, you can't imagine the military be very functional if they just went, right, let's stop the war everyone for, three hours yeah and we'll, ha- we'll all have a chat and like get a therapist in and we'll have yeah. a chat about it yeah i mean actually um i think that it was very early on then that they were they they <laughs> they had trained a few of the lads to do what's called like trim i think it's basically trauma management basically mm-hmm. and it was it was the you know it was smudge from newcastle was going to be trauma manager do you know what i mean and like mm-hmm. Smudge was a lot of the reason for your your trauma. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But um, that, and that, but that you know they like no one knew no one no one knew like the the modern man I suppose going into a war zone how that would affect them and they had like in theatre I remember they flew someone out after a particularly bad um, event um, and spoke to a few of us and just it was more of a you know look out for one another and they were encouraging us to speak to each other but it was very embryonic. Do you know what I mean? So, do you have it, the skill set to do that? Absolutely not. Um, you just like it's all very well and good talking about your emotions, but tomorrow we got to go back there and kick everyone's doors in. So, mm-hmm. like, I don't really want to calm down because I need to. It's you know me, me being amped up might save my life or my friend's life. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's maybe a cliche to say that, but it's, it's true. That's how I felt. Just a quick favour to ask, if you love the show and you think it may help someone else in the world, then head to wherever you listen to The Freedom Project and leave a five-star review and maybe even share it with some friends. It really does help me and it helps the show too. I can continue to get fantastic guests on the show, it reaches more people and it makes me feel great too. So I would be enormously grateful if you could leave a five-star review and share any episodes of the podcast that you love.
Yeah. Well, you think about it from a nervous system perspective. It's like, do you, you can be in your literal fight or flight mode and yeah. full aggression switched on, or you can be in your rest and digest and where you are more open to social engagement with people and more like creative, I suppose, to be useful, but like not the down regulation and the, <laughs> the wanting to kind of to rest. Like that's not going to be useful in that situation. So you, you've got to be. Yeah, exactly. I think the only time I can really remember relaxing out there was maybe, you know, we made a bit of a gym in one of the compounds and it was never relaxing. It was, you were just getting amped up again because you had so much like you were, it's like being, it's like bracing for a car accident the whole time. That's how it felt, you know, like, or um, if you play rugby, just that strong Mm -hmm. base and tensing, you felt like that. Oh, I've certainly felt like that the whole time, the whole time. Yeah. So what was it like getting back from Eric Nine? Um, yeah, an experience, I think. And it, I feel like I've been coming back from there for about a decade. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, a couple of key points would be you go to Cyprus and you have 24 hours decompression. Oh, because loads. Yeah. Plenty. We all know after six, seven months in contact, uh, 24 hours and four cans of Fosters will sort you right out. But I mean, I can only imagine how bad it would have been if they'd let us out you know, without that, because there was a lot of steam blown off that night. Um, and you put aside, when you're on operations, you put aside all your disagreements with everyone else for the goal, um, which is, you know, survival and carrying out your mission or whatever that might be, or, you know, winning hearts and minds, let's say. Um, and nothing gets in the way of that, nothing. Um, so, yeah, I guess you blow off a lot of steam when you get back and ultimately drink a lot of alcohol, but it's never the it's never for the right reasons i do remember you know the second night we were back crossing the road with my friend jack in our broth and uh someone shutting up shop like a news agent's pulling down uh, the front of the shop and it just sounded like a pkm which is like a, a weapon system the taliban were using and we knew we were in our broth but me i just remember almost kind of like the world tilting and me and jack just didn't even dive. It was just like a fall headfirst into the middle of the road in our broth and just some taxi driver just being like, you boys all right? And we were just like, uh, yeah. Um, and that, yeah, like, can reflect on that and it's funny, but I mean, yeah. that that feeling has kind of never really left me. It's a lot, you know, it's not as intense as it was, but it still catches me out now. Yeah. yeah. Which it's, is it sounds incredibly intense. And yeah. you, like you think about that, R and R on the way back, and it's like you. I suppose, in some way, yeah, I was comparing it in my mind to what that would have been like in Second World War. Like, yeah. you get maybe a very long march and drive back to the coast, and then get in the ship or wait for wait for the ship for a few days, and you get in the ship and go back. Or if you're in the US military, you get a really long journey back, mm-hmm. and so you have that decompression. But then to be back in the UK within what 48 hours that's incredible with yeah. a hangover yeah oh the worst hangover all the time but, um like for example you know the guys in the Falklands they some you know there's some there's some evidence and arguments out there that they're they're sail back from the the Atlantic like the, well the Falkland Islands themselves to the UK was helped a, a number of those veterans and those service people chat and deal and blow off steam and crack fears or whatever it was not that it solved you know absolutely everything but it did help and i certainly felt like yeah it was it's just a really difficult transition but um 
you see life a different way and it's you're it's almost like um it's almost it's not quite a bird's eye view but i don't know it just felt like i don't i'd it, it really i can say a different perspective but it felt really physical um mm-hmm. um yeah that's the only kind of way I, I can really describe it and it was it was more withdrawn for sure um yeah yeah i don't want to play psychologist on this at all it seems like um dissociation though like when you're separated from the experience and you take a step back and that's a classic thing of being in that sympathetic state that fight or flight state yeah and that and if you you know that's exactly how i had to manage if you think back to earlier in the conversation when i was like right you need to box all this away now and just go and do your job and that's exactly what it was it's the only way i could do it without becoming overly fearful or emotional Mm -hmm. or you know finding things incredibly difficult so yeah yeah, yeah. and it's the perfect response in that moment mm. like you had to like it was yeah. the it was, in terms of solving the problem you were facing it was exactly what you needed to do and you can kind of thank your body and your previous experience and yourself for doing that because it got you out of that um and kind yeah. of kept you acting how you needed to you mentioned in previous like kind of chats that you said you had you had your fill at that point like was that or was that at that point or was it in the months years after in the years after, a couple of years after, essentially, um, you know, I left four or five commando, got drafted elsewhere in Scotland, um, and that was for uh, I was I was beginning to show early signs of kind of PTSD, what kind of PTSD, PTSD, and um, you know, I was I was kind of in units that were best placed to help manage that, um, but that um, was very difficult, so I just decided to. I basically pretended everything was okay. It's like, no, I'm, I'm okay now. I want to go back to that persona that I had learned to build and uh, then got drafted to 4-2 Commando after doing a, a, a weapons course and being around that atmosphere again um, and everyone beating up a lot of young lads who hadn't had any operational experience were all very excited. And obviously I'd seen the other, I'd seen behind the curtain. So, um I did not cope with that well and I just was not up for it and you have to be absolutely up for it. You have to really want to go and do that and um, I just think based on my experience that I'd had, I I was just in no, it wouldn't have been right. There was people there that wanted to go and weren't going and I I had their spot, (laughs) do you know what I mean? And eventually what happened was... um, I'd been kind of drinking a lot, hammering that kind of kind of self-medication, self-harm essentially. And uh, my seniors had sort of said like, what are your plans? And I was planning to leave. So they said, well, you don't need to go and do this. You don't need to do this. You've done, you've done a tour. We know what that tour was like. Um, so if you want, you can just basically move to kind of, rear echelon company or base company and I just saw out my time basically um, for the remaining sort of 12 months and I'm not going to you know I'm not going to say that the worst would have happened had I gone but the team I was in got you know hit and a couple of guys were lost and there was a lot of casualties so I'm not going to say I'm glad that I didn't go but you know th- things happen for a reason and I you know it wouldn't have been good for me to go and do that tour and i probably would have at least mentally my mental health would have taken a real 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 hard hit so yeah that's that's kind of where you 
you hear a lot about the military being so like pig-headed with you've got to like just there's no no room for your emotions you've got to just crack on but it seems to me like the senior lads there were very understanding and um emotionally aware yeah it was it was actually you know on reflection that's absolutely phenomenal and people have spoken about that since like i don't know of any other instances that that's happened mm. um and it was my you know it was like very it was my sergeant major and the company commander who were very 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 understanding emotionally intelligent and aware of they're just good leaders you know like what do you do when you have gaps in your own skill set you find the right people that do um to to make up for it or you you move people around to make sure that the goals uh, ticked off or completed, and you have mission success. And that's essentially what they were doing. I would have I would have been a liability, I think, out there, or you know, or, or worse. So, yeah, that is mm. just great leadership, I think. Yeah, best for you and best for the mission too. Yeah, for sure. Perfect. So, what was the like in that situation? The military must have provided you with a a sense of security and the known and stability and like this is how I act in this environment. So the decision to leave must have been a, a big one for you. Yeah, I w- yeah, it was. It, I really felt like it was do or die. You know, like you, you're gonna you're gonna do this, and um, you, you're either gonna go and carry on, and you're gonna completely commit to this like persona. And like try and basically lie for the rest of your career and be something you're really not, which which might have looked like, I don't know, going getting promoted or trying different courses or you know maybe having a crack at selection. But I would have been worked out because I would have just been so fatigued from trying to keep up with this idea of who I thought I was and and ultimately unhappy. So um, at the time, yeah, I just made the decision to leave and got into everyone was doing security contracting at the time because we were. A lot of lads had operational operational experience, and uh, it was better money than than I was on in, in the military, which is not you know phenomenally well paid. Um, so yeah, I just kind of took a leap at that, and it was like it was that decision. I was like, well, I was twenty two or twenty three at the time. I felt like I was forty eight years old. Yeah, <laughs> I, a I, lot I, of life experience. Yeah, I, I wanted I wanted something different, and. Um, getting into private security kind of offered me that and it was a bit more of an adventure that was essentially safer i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna stand on an ied um and i was gonna get paid a bit more for whatever i did do so yeah yeah so where did you head off doing private security uh all around africa it was all um started off just doing quite basic pro- uh, maritime security sort of stopping piracy attacks um in like the middle east and north africa and then the main the mainstay of my work was in west africa so just kind of you were like the middlemen between um the nigerian navy and oil clients and like survey ships so we'd facilitate a security package and yeah we weren't armed because you're in nigerian kind of waters and you let them deal with that because it's their you know it's their country so we would basically advise and consult on kind of best best methods of operation to prevent piracy and i did that for three and a half years um i had a mate in the office who used to lash me up with a good job so a couple of trips to the seychelles and mauritius and stuff like that Not so um, yeah it was all right that's yeah, good yeah it was, a, it was were a good you still take were you still taking photos then or would you start taking photos then 
so actually I'd, I'd taken a couple of pictures in, you know, Afghan, which I look back at now and I'm like, oh, you know, the composition's not bad. And I definitely knew that I, even then that I like get the best camera you can for the wages you're on because you'll get a nice image because this is a once in a lifetime experience. So I was taking photos then. And then during maritime security, I would just use the camera you'd have in your, you know, your security kit and take photos for, for whatever reason. Um, whether it was just like nice light or an interesting face or, you know, just, and, and, and send them in emails back to the office and they get used in the website or something. And so it was very early doors kind of, kind of thing. And you were just in really interesting places. So you, you know, you should document it. That's what What's taking photos in Afghan like? Um, yeah, it's, you can't exactly bash out the camera mid contact, <laughs> although I wish, you know, cause they, 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 they very occasionally they'd send out like military media teams, which would be there on some really low level patrolling. But if we were ever doing training or in the, or you, you know, you pick up on atmospherics and you know when it's kind of safe. So like you would just see amazing mountains and sunrises and incredible characters. And I, you know, I've got one of my favorite photos is uh, a local kid pointed out an ID to me, which I was going to stand on. Um, and he just sort of pointed, gestured, and just went like this, like made the noise, mm. um, confirmed it. It was an ID. So I just got a selfie of me and him. <laughs> and it's just one of my favorite photos because this kid doesn't yeah. know me. Saved my life. Um, so I'm really glad I had a camera for that for that reason. You know, like I don't know where they are, but he like he's still important because I that happened and I've got a photo to kind of remember him by. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting to think where that kid would be now. Like, how old would he be? And like, fifteen years later, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, probably in his twenties or something. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, your age then. Yeah. 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 Mental. So you, you start taking, or you kind of get back into photography at that stage. You start making more of of a thing. I'm guessing. Well, yeah. It would never. <clears throat> it was. Um, it was never initially a thing. I just had that interest into it. And then I'd quit maritime security. I was kind of treading water. I didn't really enjoy it. I was doing, uh, you know, there's nowhere to go in it really. It was just like one, one level. Um, and it wasn't me again. Um, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I enjoyed that aspect, the creative aspect. And, um, I, st- I still kind of mugged it off and went and did uh, rope access, which was, you know, climbing mountains, skate or doing geo stabilization was in new zealand the mines gold mines in australia like oil rigs in new zealand and earthquake kind of disaster relief and it was on that job that uh there was like a um a competition at work it was like we're making a calendar for the company of like 30 people that we're going to dish out to clients take a photo and it will go on the cover if and the best one wins 200 quid I entered a photo that I took on my phone and then the company that printed that photo for the office or made, made the, the stationery. Some guy was like, Oh, a friend of mine works at New Zealand post or like the New Zealand mail. Um, I think they'd like this photo for whatever, for whatever reason. And, uh, he phoned me up on a job and was like, yeah, it's going on a stamp. So I had like, uh, a photo that I took on my mobile phone <laughs> Like the way it looked, captured a moment, I suppose, and it got it got put on a stamp, and um, then kind of people just started to say like, oh, you know, um, you could you could probably make a crack of this. Your photos are nice, you know. Like people would ask for them, 
and what I realized then was like, maybe I could, maybe I should, maybe I should just keep, keep at it kind of thing. But I was, you know, distracted by other things. I was, you know, boozing a lot and stuff. But yeah, I, I certainly was taking more photographs at that period. What was that photo of? Uh, it was a guy um, on his ropes halfway down a mountain, um, kind of prizing a big rock off the slope with a helicopter behind, just kind of like helicopter kind of air breaking in behind him. Um, Sounds pretty sick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. And then you said you were boozing a lot. Like, what was the decision to, like, you said you got sober and bought a camera? Yeah. So I was, uh, it, I was drinking a lot. And that was a, as a result of my, my service in, in the Marines and not kind of, you know, saying I was okay, but not really drinking a lot, et cetera. And it was very self destructive. And it kind of, <clears throat> that's a whole other story, but it kind of got to a stage where it was, you know, sometimes in private, in secret, pre-drinking um, a lot more often than not and, you know, buying stronger alcohol than because it was an IPA and it was, you know, it was craft beer. It was, it was okay, but having 10 of them, you know, and then uh, it just got to the point where essentially was having suicidal ideations um, and could kind of see and I began to understand why people might want to do that. And that was a really scary moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was just like, there's got to be another way. This is not me. This is, there has to be another way. It's so I decided someone had recommended a book to me. I read it. It's called the, the unexpected joy of being sober. And it's a story. It's a diary essentially with some kind of insight from the author. And she, uh, she talks about her journey to sobriety and it just really resonated with me. And I decided that day there and then with a massive hangover uh, that I was never going to drink again. Otherwise I'd potentially, you know, it would kill me. So, but I made a bit of a plan. I just did, kind of did research around it and figured out what I was spending, the impact of everything and on other people's lives and the emotional impact of, for my family and, you know, spoke to close friends, family and said, I've got a drinking problem. And they all turned around and said, we know. Um, and I figured out how much I was spending on average. It was like $15 a day or something like seven pounds a day just on cheap beer or whatever. And, um, yeah, that, uh, was it 15, 15 pounds a day? Yeah. On, on beer. So I basically decided, right, I'm going to figure out what the average is that I spend every month. And after three months sober, whatever I've got, I'm going to spend that on a nice camera and I'm going to pour my energy into that. And that just snowballed. And then, you know, got six months sober, bought some more camera equipment and uh, being a photographer is definitely more expensive than being an alcoholic. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of, uh, it kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. It's interesting that you have those like two, come back to the same, uh, the same idea as early. You have that glimmer of like, this is who I want to be, like the fleeting glimpse to use mm. the Pink Floyd term. And then you have the, like, then you have the, also that glimmer of this is who I could become if I really fuck up and yeah. I keep making these poor decisions. And I don't know about you in that scenario, but I can almost see that as an appeal as well to become the worst version of myself. There's like a, a safety in it or like a yeah. um, predictability or like a, a kind of warmness with it. Whereas it's very confrontational and difficult to go, this is the type of person I actually do want to become. 
yeah you you're right in the fact that that you it's familiar when you just basically getting on the sesh all the time and easy being, being that person to think everyone, everyone thinks you are yeah you just oh james likes the booze that's james you know um and it's a lot more difficult to face up to your kind of demons and because you haven't been down that path and that's a key thing is it's a path it's not a road it's like it winds and it's unstable and you don't know kind of where it goes sometimes it's not a direct route so to to face up to that and take it slow is is really really difficult and I, it, it was tough but uh i had already built up kind of 10 years of experience of what it was like to be me on the piss <laughs> so i that i was almost you know i was bored of that and it was i think going to be fatal so and i i wanted to see what i could what else i could do i think i didn't know that wasn't proven ground so and it was always an itch I'd wanted to scratch and people would finally give me some feedback on, on this other thing. Like, Oh, it's, it's good. You know, like maybe you could be professional. So yeah, I think just, there was a, there was a podcast and someone in that explained the story about burning the ships essentially. And it's like, it's about, you know, these, when the Spanish conquered South America and the, the fleet commander basically burnt went over there with the most modern navy ever and they got everyone ashore and they all kind of army sort of said you know this is a boiled down version but the army had said you know what now and their leader said we're going to burn the ships sink everything we're not leaving and when we do leave it's going to be in their ships so it's like leave i didn't want to give myself that plan b again you know it's like no this is this is what you do now. There's no going back here. You kind of, people say don't burn your bridges, but you know, sometimes it can be good. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have a way back in. Yeah. Also, it feels there's a different quality to the kind of actions and a different um, experience to that moment where you go, okay, I'm going to vote for the person I don't want to become. Yeah. And I'm going to have a few beers or there's a different kind of experience. Like for you, I'm taking photos. Like yeah. I'm performing that work. Like what is, what's the quality difference like or qualitative difference of that? Sorry. So, that, so it's like the, the, yeah. Like what's the experience like for you when you're taking photos, when you're like, when you can see yourself moving down that path? Yeah. I mean, there's no limit to your potential in that. There's no limit. People say like, you really, you really fulfilled your potential. That's bollocks. Like there is no, there's no limit to that. Like, it, cause it's so dynamic and it changes all the time and your and your interests and, the flavor of things changes, right? So for me, uh, it's almost like you're trying to capture, um, like, stardust. It sounds so cliche, but you can't bottle it. You know what I mean? You get a feeling from it that's really difficult to describe, and only I know what that is. And I understand now that there's no – What's it's a really nice path because there's no arrival, like – you know, you win, what's the highest accolade you could win in like the creative industry? It's an Oscar. But then, you know, you win that, you'd probably be like, well, two would be nice or two in a different category or one in a different category. It's, it's limitless. So, and I accept that. And that's the best thing about it. It just teaches you to be patient and and be persistent and repeat, rep, you know, you, you just, it's like, it's like fishing, you know, like mm-hmm. you prepare all your stuff, you go, but sometimes you don't get anything, but other times you just get, an absolute whopper and it makes you feel amazing so yeah yeah and i suppose there's that satisfaction in the process and fulfill fulfillment in the act itself yeah yeah you um 
you can come back to stuff that you do and make and, and have a new appreciation for it as well. So it's kind of unending and limitless. So you learn skills and you go and you walk around. Like I walk around the same areas over and over again and then stuff reveals itself and it's pleasing to me and that's okay. Yeah. And that's all I want, you know, and you need to do that. Sometimes you go, sometimes I take, I take my camera with me everywhere and it's always turned on and, um, but, you know, cause I want to be ready but sometimes I don't even raise it to take a photo. Do you know what I mean? Cause it just doesn't, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like it's there, but then sometimes I take a thousand and I get one good one and I'm like, I'm happy for a month. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So yeah, there's, I just, it's, it's just, an, that's unending for me. It's like limitless. It's brilliant. We, the thing that strikes me about photography is you've got to learn to notice things and you've yeah. got to learn to observe and you, that must pull you out of your hyper narrow focus and literally broaden your horizons and see more of what's happening. Have you heard that phrase um, to, to paint is to see. So it's like learning to yeah. paint. It's like learn to see for the first time. It's like you see things in a different light because like, Oh, like it's not, this table isn't just Brown. There's blacks in there and lighter Browns and dark rounds and some reds. And it's like, you see things differently exactly that and like you know i'll look at a scene or what has happened to me a few occasions is i've imagined a place and a scene and what would like wouldn't it be good if this happened and then i've found that place but then the moment hasn't you know uh the moment hasn't happened or but now i know that place exists so i keep going there um and then i'll just wait for this perfect moment and then sometimes you know there's a million that haven't happened but there's one or two that have happened and you're like it was like i thought it would be it's uh yeah it's it's insane same as standing there getting a green lid and going like i've seen this before like i had this might be something that gets pulled out the podcast we'll see and i did this um psychedelic ceremony uh, a few years back did ayahuasca and then san pedro which is a kind of cactus and I in it I had this vision of this like perfectly like matte green landscape that you, you see in the UK hmm. and this long valley with a river right like winding between it and it really stuck with me I'm not really sure why but like that image it was so like visceral and I was like fuck man that's like so um so poignant for some reason and like a month later I was up in Scotland and it turned around and it's like, fuck, it's, it's that exact vision. I've like, I've seen this, I've been here before. It was crazy. That's a really good feeling. And I, that's like, that's the, the thing I kind of live for is like when it is as you imagined and it, it's the realization of a dream and it's like, it's so finite that, but when it does, that's makes it all worth it. Yeah. So how do you move from that place of just starting photography and i'm guessing videography starts around the same time like how do you move from that to where you eventually have moved to now well so it's just repetition and only serving myself essentially to begin with and then you know people start to say oh hey can you come and get this for me i'll give you some cash and then you you know you learn to establish yourself and what you're worth and you know because you get busy and you have to price people out of your kind of calendar really um and then uh videography is something i'm filmmaking and documentary filmmaking more so is something I was like really interested in. I'd love, used to love a channel Four documentary back in the day. Um, whatever it was, you know, certainly a lot of history ones, etc. all the ones about, you know, the world at war, that kind of stuff, like mm-hmm. in- incredible. But, um, then I, 
through the, the Royal Marines Association and the Royal Marines Charity helped me out with some therapy for like treatment of trauma. This is four years ago, three, four years ago. Um, and as a result, I was then put into a pool of people that might benefit from essentially some, some time away. So they paid for a ski trip of people who are injured or having certain issues or problems. And they just kind of sent me to Chamonix for a week. Uh, skiing which is the only time i feel like i benefited like prof there's all these people in the marines that used to go on these trips to the america and stuff and yeah. i was not one of those people but you know i left and they put me on one um <laughs> so but when i got there <clears throat> i actually found it really difficult at like rocking up to the airport i hadn't really hung around with ex-marines or marines for about a decade i'd, I'd actively avoided it um besides two or three people and um had massive amounts of anxiety and I, you know, got to the airport, met these people and actually it was like, it's quite an emotional time. I felt back in the fold, back in the group, but everyone around me was physically injured and I felt kind of like I didn't belong there, even though I still felt like part of the tribe. I was like, oh, maybe this is not mm. the trip for me. But what I did do was take a camera and I almost felt a bit guilty that A, I wasn't injured and B, I hadn't done any fundraising for the RMA and they paid for some therapy. So I was like, well, I'll take some photos and I'll get a few clips. And uh, what actually that turned into was like a, a three minute kind of short film, which they used aspects of. <clears throat> and that was empowering and it gave me the confidence to be professional, essentially, because they saw benefit in it and they saw value in it um fast forward a year later i got invited on another trip but this time for longer with the proviso that i would kind of take all my new skills and equipment and make something a bit more um deliberate and i just spent i mean we had three really good snow days so i uh i definitely didn't do any filming for that i just <laughs> enjoyed the powder you know how it is no friends on a power day but um i uh yeah, I basically spent eleven days, kind of, kind of, kind of come, come up with a story, and the the lads there were good enough to let me film them, and that turned into a short documentary called "Finding an Edge," which I gave to the RMA, and they they've used in their fundraising, etc. Um, but what that was really good for was kind of understanding where I wanted to be as a filmmaker, and also highlighting a few issues around kind of veteran support and kind of wellness and well being. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's kind of led to the like the development of a longer form documentary, which we're going through now. Yeah, it, there's so many directions we could go in here. Yeah, and I think one thing that's important to just quickly touch on is what a veteran actually is. And I did a little bit of googling before this because I was like, I I don't think I actually know like yeah. what qualifies because it seems like in society and maybe it's your own personal standards because there's always someone above you you kind of go or there's someone who's done more and seen more and been more and you go oh that's what a veteran actually is yeah they've deployed to here but like technically a veteran is someone who's what served one day in yeah. regular or reserve forces yeah like, okay that's a different kind of feeling around this yeah and uh i think we have a perception of what a veteran is in our heads and it's, you know, we're a similar age. So we would have grown up with, you know, watching the TV and the cenotaph parade and these world war one veterans and two veterans. And in my mind, that is someone who's a lot older 
has seen so much, has a much more like depth and breadth of experience in many different things. And, you know, someone that raises money in a suit outside, mm-hmm. you know, the Tesco or whatever and does all the poppy appeal stuff. That's what it was. And I was on this ski trip and I realized, well, actually I'm a veteran and I'm in my early thirties and I left, I was 23 years old. Didn't feel like a veteran, didn't look like a veteran. And I think, um, there's almost a bit of a, a kind of fatigue around that awareness, uh, of certainly with a more contemporary audience and the way the kind of the world is now, um, around perception of biases i think yeah it just needed to be kind of taken another look at um so that's what we're we're kind of hoping to do so is that that's the lens you're taking for this feature length documentary yeah it's um it's a, it's a few things it's you know the the kind of things we're hanging our hat on is that actually next year is 10 years since the end of operations in afghan ended uh, that's deliberate operations so you know conventional forces out there fighting an enemy um that's a decade ago which is it's insane to to think that um what happens to the people that are injured you know 150,000 deployed um 7,800 of those people became casualties which is a large number um and like nearly 500 got killed so but what we want to look at is um yeah what do they do how do they how are they cared for who looks out who looks out for them what's their quality of life like and i saw a very small part of that on the on the ski trip um and also like we realized um in development the team that like and looking through the interviews that i'd filmed that it's just so powerful being in the mountains and and giving these people an opportunity to test themselves at their own speed so I think the military kind of can be quite bad for kind of go hard or go home. You know, people bloody canoeing from here to Venus. Do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 mental. And I think these organizations and charities give these people an opportunity to just kind of help them redefine themselves or find a sense of self again. Like some of these people were incredible soldiers and athletes um, who had huge responsibility and did amazing things whether that's in war zones or humanitarian aid or just on courses and and redefining the way the military operates and stuff and overnight in in war or on exercise or at work by you know at the kind of whim of their employer they become injured or unwell or their mental health changed and there is some support but it's still not great so we kind of want to look at you know who's who's helping them and, and what that looks like for these people now mm-hmm. what's your personal objective for this both as as a filmmaker but also as the change that you'd like to see like evolve because of this i want to continue to advocate care for all veterans um regardless of service and background um whether it's one day or 30 years or you know whether you were in did five tours of Afghanistan where you just did exercises, right? Everyone played their part. Um, so I want continued care and, and I just want to highlight what it takes for to, to help a, tra- a service person transition in, into civilian life and, and highlight there's a big argument. Oh, you're going to have so many transferable skills. Yeah, but what does that look like? What are these? I want people to, I want this film to humanize those people and see them for the personalities and the experiences that they have. So that they can, you know, maybe someone from an organisation or they have a colleague at work that they know has military experience 
And I want them to see them for who they are, the experience they have, and have more empathy and understanding because, you know, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. There's a perception that veterans are mad, bad, or sad, and that just is not the case. So, and me personally, I am a veteran, you're a veteran, and our team of filmmakers includes a lot of veterans or, or people that work with them a lot. And we feel like it does take a veteran to tell the veteran story because um, we understand the humor which is often dark mm-hmm. um but, and we know that these people uh don't like to be victimized but they don't like to be lionized either so it's just going to be an honest apolitical raw and authentic look at what a veteran is and what it takes to 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 redefine yourself mm-hmm. it's i think it is only a veteran that could provide a, a narrative without bias Yes. And to say this, these are the facts, and this is the truth representation of it. Because if you haven't served in any capacity, you don't have the normalization of it. It's something yeah. distant to you. Yeah, you're right, and um, it's, it's quite hard for people to get around. But I think or get their heads around. So I think just because we have that perspective, and I have my experience and own personal journey, and. Um, I'm trying to chase that feeling I spoke about with the kind of photography aspect. I think we can, we can capture that. And because it's us making it we also in terms of like storytelling and, and rapport, those barriers are removed. We're not, you know, sky TV coming in or production house from Netflix or whatever. We're, we are the lads. Like I'm there We're I'm a Patriot and I love, I love these people and I understand what they've been through and what they've given and sacrificed. So I think we have a duty to, to do the right thing and tell the the story as it should be told before someone makes a hash of it kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, um, and I, what I think I should really touch on as well is through the filmmaking and research, you know, there's moments where I, you know, I've mic'd these people up and Baz, for example, who's in the original short film, which just got into Kendall mountain festival, which we're pretty stoked about, but he, I had him wired up, and he's learned to ski. He's lost a, a leg at the hip and his other leg is was badly damaged and he's damaged to his hands. He hasn't skied since he was a mountain leader. He was an ML1. So, you know, a lot of responsibility. And then he's put back on the mountain in an unfamiliar piece of equipment. And I had the headphones on all day and I, he's got an instructor, an English instructor and a French instructor talking to him all day. And he, he has... Sorry, my wife just came in. Um, he has his his attitude and his mindset to get through that, take on board all that constructive criticism and feedback uh, was so inspiring and motivating for me personally to be able to hear that and get to film it. And I know that people will get the same should if they watch if they watch this. Like mm. it's it, it just kind of it, it it does lift you up and it's it's just built, it just gives you loads of hope and yeah, I think. Um, that's what we just want to motivate and inspire people too as well there'll be a bunch of people listening to this thinking that is a project i can get behind yes how can they do so well uh we, we're obviously on social media um and we have a website so you can follow at once we are warriors film on instagram it's on it's on tiktok and um twitter as well uh or you can you can search for us on the Indiegogo Once We Warriors Film and also the website which is www.oncewewarriorsfilm.com um, and there's a the teaser trailer in there which is like Charles our director of photography 
cut for using some original footage, some some helmet cam footage, and it's like spine ting- tingling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and quite an emotional piece. And uh, yeah, you can back the film and get involved by you can you can make a donation or you can get like a physical t shirt and back the film too and um, like fill a part of it. You can you can also become a co-producer on it as well if you, if you want to make a larger donation or if your company wants to sponsor it so yeah it's um we're we're, we're just over 10 grand in funding now uh there's a, quite a lot more to go mm-hmm. but um we can essentially just about get to france and get the cameras on now with that budget but um to make it to make it a real showpiece and get it to television or, or a streaming service it'll take a bit more yeah fantastic man well let's do it Let's yeah. make a difference. Um, yeah. I'm stoked to see this come to fruition and the journey that it goes on. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Thanks for, thanks for chat, chatting with me about it. My absolute pleasure. And where can people find you and follow your work? Uh, on uh, the, yeah, Palpa Films, so P-A-L-P-A Films um, on, on Instagram. All, all the website is just palpafilms.com. So, um, yeah, just if you've got any questions as well, just reach out to me on there. and I'm more than happy to chat with people about it. Legend. Thank you so much. No worries, Tom. Cheers. Join us on a powerful journey with Once We Were Warriors, a documentary that transcends boundaries and speaks to the souls of our veterans. We need your support to turn this vision into reality. Once We Were Warriors reveals the path to recovery for injured Royal Marines commandos in the French Alps. Produced by former servicemen, it offers the most authentic storytelling. This documentary dives deep into the lives of those who have served, challenging stereotypes and advocating for veterans' care as we approach a decade since the end of combat operations in Afghanistan. But to make this vision a reality, we need your support and your funding. Support us on a crowdfunding campaign at www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com to help us make this documentary a reality and give a voice to those who have sacrificed so much. Join us in making a difference. Together, we can rewrite the narrative for our veterans. Once more, that link is www.oncewewerewarriorsfilm.com.